As I walk amongst these foundations, I see concrete into solid rock, firm and sound. I remember walking amongst the foundations of the old city of Corinth. Rubble, not so firm, not so solid and grounded. Yet Paul writes to the people in Corinth in his first letter to the Corinthians. And we learn what's good about the church. God has built for us a solid foundation, sound and firm. Jesus is the head of our church. Well, good morning all. So good to be in church today, yeah? So good to be together. It's good to be together because today we focus on unity and uh, what's, what's good in the church, what's good about unity. Uh, I want to start by saying over the, the last couple of weeks, this is week three of our series, Firmly Founded, Safely Grounded. In the first three verses of introduction, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, there's a couple of things that Paul makes really clear that we've covered already. Uh, these are very good aspects of being part of God's church and uh, timely reminder as we keep kind of rebooting uh, constantly in our Christian experience. In week one, we, uh, we are saints in the eyes of God. He has made us different. Wasn't it good to hear testimony this morning? that we are different because of Christ, identified by God as holy, made that way by God's favour upon us and expected to live according to that calling, expected to live like we have been remade. And then last week, Pierre reminded us in week two, we are the recipients of God's grace. We've received the unmerited favour of God and we should not trample on the grace that God has given us. Love that. I loved how he, he couched that. It, it's God's divine plan. We get the very thing that we don't deserve. We get eternal life with the Father through the atoning sacrifice of the Son and we're now led by the wholeness of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit enters our life when we become a Christian. So we get everything that we've not earned. Grace means we get what we don't deserve. Got to love grace, yeah? God's idea, God's gift. So today we want to look and check out the next uh, few verses in chapter 1. And in particular, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Because uh, Paul is going to begin his quite uh, can't be understated uh, admonishment to the church very soon. It's obviously on his mind, but he still has unfinished business in this introduction in terms of explaining what's good in our life in Christ. And up to this point, if you've been following 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 1 and these first 10 verses, Paul mentions Christ 10 times. So there's a deep focus 
as he's introducing the reality of, hey, uh, church in Corinth, I have some things to say, but before you hear what the Lord has uh, inerrantly given to me to share with you, you've got to remember you're in Christ. You've got to remember you're in Christ, 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 in Christ. You get that? Before he gets to teaching and instruction. He wants to proclaim great church health. He's still, though, focusing on reminding the church about their unique value to God and each other in Christ. You know, I recall my early experiences of church going on camps uh, and, and these things, church picnics. Hang on, I'm not working. Is it? Yep, there we go. Uh, some of you will remember Sunday school picnics. Uh, what about the potluck dinners, fellowship teas we used to have? It's part of Baptist heritage. I know many other churches. I've got friends in the Uniting Church and they have similar memories. So much of my great memories of church life centred around fellowship. Because, hey, amen, that's church, yeah? Come with me if you have a Bible or an app to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The fellowship aspect of the church in Corinth is really important. So uh, give this another try. There we are. And uh, Pierre covered from verses 4 to 9 aspects of this last Sunday, but I just want to get back in there to ground this. It's so important. Paul reminds the church that Jesus is returning. Have a look in verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. The language is clearly future tense. It's going to happen and it's still going to happen. Paul's speaking here of the future gift of God's grace. The past gift is our lives uh, seen in salvation. That was an act of grace. And for each of us who are Christian here today, there's a time in our life. We heard from uh, Trev and Wendy today, a time in history when you gave in and you gave over to God. You heard about the resurrection. You heard about the cross. I'd heard, and my story is similar, so many times that Jesus loves you. My mother probably put me to bed uh, most nights telling me that Jesus loved me. But I didn't get it until I realised how that applied to me personally, that Jesus gave his life. And we'll talk about atonement a little bit later and explain it. But the bottom line is something needed to happen radically so that I could be in relationship with Jesus, with, with the Father since creation was perfect and then man got involved and then it wasn't perfect anymore after sin. And ever since, there was this opportunity to sacrifice in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and Jesus gives his life willingly. Bible says could have called legions of angels and he could have. 
but he chose not to because part of God's plan was about redemption for me and for you. Praise God. And the redemption plan was sin pays off with death. There had to be death. It's either my death or it's Jesus' death in the truth. And Jesus chose to die so that I could live and you could live. Amen, yeah? When you placed faith and trust in Christ, you are saved. There's no add-ons. There's, there's no other condition but faith in the truth, believing in who Jesus is and what he did brings life. The salvation work Jesus did upon the cross, his death and resurrection is applied. He died to conquer sin and he rose alive, resurrected to new life and offers new eternal life to all believers. What a story. Don't water that down in your heart. That's what God chose to do for you and for me. That's our present gift, life in Jesus. And in verse 7, the scripture gives us a future gift yet to be realised. And this is the awesome return of Jesus Christ that we often refer to as the second coming. You get it, yeah? Isn't that awesome? Are you asleep? Do you get it? It's awesome. And here's another scripture, just to show how perfectly scripture ties together. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen, but Titus chapter 2. I think I need to go back one. Oh, I was right. Sorry. There we go. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Paul reminds us here, we're saved for a purpose, we get grace from God, our Father and Lord, and the Spirit of God constrains us to do what we know that we should to do what's right. We wait on the promised return of Jesus. And it's not the passive waiting as you wait for a bus or an Uber or a program on your computer to load. How frustrating could that be? But as we wait for the Lord's return, we are to be about serving him, worshipping while we serve. B.R. Lakin has said about the second coming, live as if he were coming today and plan as if he will not come for another thousand years. Don't you like that? So let me get to the point for today because that is necessary background. Our faith in Christ brings us together in a united desire for the return of Jesus. That's unity. 
waiting upon the return of Jesus with desire in our hearts. That's important. And all that actually means is Jesus is coming and we should live like we believe it. And we are together in hope and expectation. Together in hope. That's the backbone of our fellowship. And the church at Corinth and here at Northreach, we claim together 1 Corinthians and verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our fellowship unites us and gives us a collective purpose. We have fellowship with our saviour and with one another. That's what grace does. And this is how unity is experienced. So unity is the outcome of God's grace that brings us together into fellowship. It's not something we kind of yearn for. We yearn for Christ, not for unity. As we yearn for Christ and we are together, unity comes. Amen? It's a God thing. It's not something we do. So never think that you have the authority or the power to be in unity. Jesus does. God does. And our focus... Remember, I'm not going to go through it again, but you remember one, two, three, ten times before he even says this. It might be just me, right? But often I hear the word fellowship used outside of God's kingdom. And that so annoys me. I just have a personal belief that there is no fellowship outside of Christ. In the biblical understanding of what the word fellowship actually is. Think about it. In our English language, we just throw the word fellowship around. And we've uh, allowed its meaning to open up that we can have fellowship together, you know, if we go to the pub. Or maybe you can if it's in Christ. But if you're there with others outside of Christ, I'm going to say you can't have fellowship. You can have friendship. You you can hang together. But don't abuse fellowship in your mind. It doesn't even matter what language we use. I'm not being that particular. But if you believe and know the word of God, in your heart because it's in your mind, then you will know what I'm saying. Fellowship is only in Christ. The blessing of unity is only in Christ. So come with me to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. This is our key verse. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. You see, the blessing of unity is important in just about every organisation there is. What I mean is there's a need for what unity brings in the facets of life. Now, 
Unity is only going to be in Christ. But imagine the multitude of organisations in our world that if they experienced unity, if everyone was in Christ, a change would be in our world, yeah? So we have a yearning in our spirit, because we are spirit, for unity. But those of us in Christ are the only ones who can actually experience it. Imagine what the world would be like if we were all in unity. I mean, there's a need for what unity brings. And the whole idea of we're better together comes out of the knowledge that when we are unified, things generally are always better. In sport, it's called teamwork. Just the, the idea of being better together. In sales, it's called a marketing plan, which is made known and everyone is on board with it and then sales go up. It's not hard to work out that God's way is always good, always better, always fruitful. So unity makes everything nicer, better, more sweet. And when it applies, as it does in the scripture, spiritually, it always takes us deeper. Unity is critical to the strength of the Christian church. But let me also say that disunity, disunity is the reason that sin thrives in our world. The disunity in the Christian church is leading people to consider and eventually to join, in many cases, other options that life provides, be it sport on Sunday or working in the community or generally find other things to do. Fellowship draws us closer. Unity brings this sense of community together into the light spiritually, which means that we have to deal with all things with a sense of the importance of the gathering together in unity. Find the things that we can agree on. And where do we find them? I believe in the word of God. God's word is inspired by the almighty. And it's important that we study, apply and obey it. Who do we have unity with? Listen carefully. Our unity is with those who believe and preach the whole counsel of God. I cannot have unity with anyone, regardless of whether they state that they're a Christian or not. I cannot have unity with anyone outside of Christ. Amen? We can't experience unity if we're not in Christ. And we can't be in Christ if we're not in the word. Because the two go together. Jesus and the word are in unity. And you can't have unity if you don't believe the word of God. Often I find myself saying that I can have fellowship with those who share the truth of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, we are in Christ and therein is unity. But if I've got a, brother, if I've got a, a person who says to me, yeah, I believe in Jesus but not the Bible, excuse me, 
think that's a faux pas. Like, how can you believe in Jesus without the Bible? So true unity is a connection with the Spirit leading us to the Son and then the Spirit teaching us how to live in obedience through the Word. The Gospel unites us, or I can consider it a time well spent when I connect with those whose heart is for the Gospel. If we want to do something in our city, it's with others who believe in Christ and apply the Word of God. Amen? So let's do it. Let's be in unity with all denominations who preach Christ and him crucified. Let's not stand on a holy box and say, you know, we've we've got the truth. No, we've got the truth if we're in Christ. Amen? And so let's be unified with those in our city who will work with us to reach this city for Christ. Bottom line, it's a waste of time to invest too much into those who call themselves Christian but don't focus on the gospel or the fullness and the inerrancy of scripture. When I think about, this is just me, right, so I'm not including anybody else in this, but when I think about ecumenicalism today, I feel like it sometimes gets too much of our best bits when there are people who need to hear the truth about Jesus. So when the focus is on Christ, because we're in Christ, I'm all in. Make sense? But when there is an opportunity to invest in unity, real unity, I'm there. And I'm keen to see what's happening in the combined churches space here in the city. I... um, I love what Spurgeon says. So he's one of the fathers of our kind of modern church history. In his book, The Essence of Separation, he says, to remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one as we are one, referring to John 17, verse 22. A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they're saying is, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organisation regardless. And they say, unite, unite. Spurgeon goes on, such teaching is false, reckless and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Because John, in John 17, Jesus prays, and you need to see that in the full context, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. So uh, to teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. That's all Spurgeon. The word of God and love for Christ are the things which bring true unity. Uh, People back in in Spurgeon's day said, preach it Spurgeon. Today I'm like, preach it Spurgeon, yeah? And then A.W. Tozer jumps in, 
says in his book, The Pursuit of God, has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? So the musos in the room are like, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Uh, they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. One standard, everything tuned to that one standard. And so the alignment is a hundred worshippers coming together, each one looking to the one Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could ever in any other way possibly be. How good is that? So this is great. Unity isn't what we do ever. Its results come when each of us together is focused upon Jesus. Jesus at the centre. Paul knows that unity is essential for the growth and the good health of the church in Corinth. And so, again, we read, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, you have an opinion when you read that in isolation, but what's he said? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, then you can apply this. You get that, don't you? Whilst I want to restate that great fellowship can move us toward unity and unity is spiritual and it's about Jesus, it comes through Jesus, clearly spiritual. I also want to say clearly that unity is the product of a spiritually sound attitude together. That when we are together in Christ, that motivates us to act and live like Jesus is coming again, remember? So our attitude needs to be applied. Just being together and trusting God probably, I mean, unity can be spiritual, so is spiritual. So there's an aspect there. But when we bring our responsible attitude to it, the experience is a rollover of joy, isn't it? You see that? So we've got to contribute. It's people contributing to one another that you, you actually get to experience what unity is. It's actually a miracle. And I want to finish up with a bit of theology. Not going to go too deep. Hang in there, stay with me. Remember the sacrificial death of Jesus makes us believers and one with God. It's called uh, atonement. But have a look at that word and in your mind, rather than me break it up, break it up uh, put a line between at or the T and the O and then between the E and the M and you get at one moment. You see that? At one The miracle of salvation provided through grace by a holy God and providing atonement for sinful, for sinful people and bringing us together through salvation into oneness, sinful people unified gets at one 
I love that. The atonement brings for us at one in Christ. And a definition of unity is oneness. You look it up in the dictionary. It's oneness or the state of being one together. And God also desires the miracle of unity as a sign of the true church, his church serving and worshipping together. A lot depends on unity. Unity depends on it. Lives depend on it. And here the kicker may just be that a lot of us notice it's true. If a church is not unified, it divides and ministry suffers and the outside world watches on and puts another tick behind that, oh, that's the church. So our oneness together needs to be clear and we need to contribute towards it. True? I just want us to read what actually uh, John 17, Jesus praying, says, because this is a record for the church of what Jesus actually prayed, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. See unity there? May they also be in us so that world may believe that you have sent me. It's a powerful request. Father, let my followers be as unified as you and I are. At one together. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are completely one, inseparable. And Jesus' final hours were spent praying that he would be that intimate, that united, that oneness with the Father that his church would experience that as well. And unity reflects the glory and the character of God because God is unified. So much of the atonement is so that we can experience what God has declared to be true upon us. It reflects his character and it gets the attention of the world. I um, had the opportunity a few times to sit down with Wayne Bennett, who used to be with the Broncos, and the period of time I'm referring to is right then when he was with the Broncos, when you could talk about the Broncos with a smile on your face. And uh, we've had several conversations, but a conversation about success of the Broncos, when you could have such a conversation... And Bennett said, I'd rather have a champion team that works together than a team of champions doing their own thing. You remember that? And he's quoted that a number of times in the press as well. When you sit down with him personally, that's what's on his mind. Rather have a champion team, people that work together, than a bunch of champions Jesus said people will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. So powerful. So Paul asked the Corinthians in the name of Jesus Christ to agree with one another. Why? So that there would be no delusions and there would be perfect unity in their minds and their thoughts. So where have we come so far in our series? We're made holy 
separated for God's glory and purpose by grace to experience unity. So important. Pretty soon he gets on to instruction to experience unity. Paul is laying down his foundation before his teaching begins. <clears throat> 